first scripture lesson shall be a unison reading. If you will turn to selection 45 in the back of the hymnal, this is a different selection than announced in the bulletin. Selection 45, we shall read Matthew 5, 3 through 16 together in unison. Selection 45. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out, trodden underfoot by men. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hid, nor do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Follow the reading of it. It is given in the back of the hymnal as a unison reading. I think, however, it will be a little clearer if you'll just follow through and let me read it. The first psalm. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. I don't know how it is at your house, but we get a little tired right after Christmas, and uh, we start picking up all the wrapping papers and throwing this stuff away, and then we debate as to how long we're going to leave the tree up and the little ones usually went out and it stays up until it begins to wither away, unlike the tree that's described in our scripture lesson this morning, and we have to throw it away. Now then, the Merry Christmases have faded away, and this week you will be greeted by many people with a familiar expression, Happy New Year. 
You will also be greeted by some that telling you that they wish for you and yours a prosperous new year. And if you look to our lesson this morning, and I hope you'll follow it in the responsive reading there, the first psalm, selection number one, you will find, I think, adequate and ample provision and guidance for what can be a happy and a prosperous new year. The Lord Jesus Christ based his Sermon on the Mount on this particular psalm. It stands as a preface to the whole Psalter because it is going to speak to us of the blessedness of the righteous. It begins, of course, with the familiar word blessed, which means happy. Happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of the sinner, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. First of all, it begins by telling us some negative things. It tells us that the man who is going to be happy, and this would be happiness in the new year too, there are certain things that he will not do. He will not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Now here, by ungodly, we are not to assume any person who is just hell-bent on going contrary to God's law or will, but the influence is far more subtle. The word ungodly here means those who simply do not take God seriously. Much of this attitude prevails in the books and the magazines that we read. Much of it prevails in the motion pictures that we see or the television programs that we view. We are getting what is called a totally secular viewpoint. That is a life without God. And so if we walk in the counsel of the ungodly, those who are careless and live as though God did not exist, then uh, we cannot know happiness. The word walk, of course, means a whole manner of life. When we are told in Scripture that a certain son of a king walked in the way of his father, it means that he followed his father's example. And the one thing the psalmist is telling us here that the happy man will not do is take his attitude, his point of view, and his direction for life from those who live as though God did not matter, nor do they care about his way or purpose and will. He takes it a step further. He says he will not stand in the way of sinners. A sinner is a person who's bent on sinning. The word sin in scripture is hamartia. It means to miss the mark. Uh, if you're in a basketball game and you dribble close to the goal and you shoot, and you miss the mark, it doesn't count a thing. Yesterday, if you watched the longest football game in the history of professional football, you saw the Kansas City Chiefs get within scoring distance, and their man who had won all the prizes for uh, being the best place uh, field goal kicker in professional football this year missed going through the uprights. He couldn't make it. Now then, Sin is missing the mark. Sin is a person who is going to live his own way and do his own thing, not God's thing, and whose desires will uh, be the direction, whose desires and their fulfillment will be the motivation of his existence. Well, the righteous man, the blessed man, will not stand in the way of sinners. He will not go in this direction. He will not sit in the seat of the scornful. Here we see a sort of progression toward evil. First, he will not walk in the counsel of the godless. 
He will not stop and stand or loiter. By the way, I need to explain that word. One of our kids wanted to know the other day what a sign at a parking place that said no loitering meant. To loiter means to dawdle. It, it means uh, to waver, uh, an aimless purpose. Uh, there are people who are moral loiterers. Uh, they loiter through life, pandering to their own lusts and desires. Well, if you stand in that company, before you know it, you will begin to pick up their way of doing things. Now, if someone says, well, you're one of those people who think that all the Christians ought to go into a monastery. I do not. That's a great mistake. Jesus said we are to be salt of the world, and salt is no good. If you keep it in the salt shaker, you've got to spread it around. And the same thing is true with Christians. We need to have contact with other people. But we will not take our bearings nor get our viewpoint on life uh, from uh, their uh, sinful viewpoint. There is a difference in Scripture, you know. There is such a thing as sin. There is such a thing as failing to understand or to desire God's law and God's will and God's way. And the person who belongs to God, the man who is going to be his, will go from God's viewpoint and his influence will be directed in that direction. And this, I think, is a very important lesson for young people. And I'm glad that we have so many of our young people home from college uh, because this can happen to you. You can become thoroughly secularized as far as your viewpoint in life is concerned when you go away to school. You don't really mean to forget about God, but the first thing you know, you just forget about him. You don't go to church anymore. Reading your Bible sort of seems passe. And after all, everybody is reading this book. Why shouldn't I read it too? And the first thing you know, your attitudes toward sex, your attitude toward right and wrong, your attitude toward life, and its goal and its purpose and its meaning is all shaped not by the scriptures and not by Jesus Christ and not by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit but by the influence that is around you. You find yourself uh, walking in the way of the ungodly. You stop and stand and the first thing you know you pick up their manner of speech. You pick up their viewpoint toward life and you begin to then finally progress one step further to the seat of the scornful. The scornful is the worst state here that is described because this is a person who is openly opposed to what is righteous in God's sight. He scoffs at it, mocks at it, makes fun of it, ridicules people who walk in a righteous way. But if we walk in the council, we take our advice from the ungodly. If we stop and stand in the way of sinners, then we soon begin to sit in the seat of the scornful. There is a progression here, walking, standing, and sitting, ungodly, sinners, and scornful. This is the progression downward. And this is the thing that the, that the man who is going to be blessed and happy before God is not going to do. He's not going to go in that direction. Well, I'm thankful that this psalm does not end upon a negative note, the, but rather it begins to tell us that there is some positive attributes toward righteousness as well. It tells us, for instance, that the blessed man, the happy man, is one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, 
and in his law doth he meditate day and night. This does not mean that he reads his Bible all day and all night, but it means that his viewpoint, both day and night, is oriented and taken from the revealed truth of God. The scriptures are the revealed truth of God, and he takes his viewpoint from this and not from whatever the current fad happens to be. He is anchored to the authority of God's word as far as his viewpoint in life is concerned. I know uh, someone the other day that I was reading, Dwight L. Moody. Uh, there are certain people who think you have to pray all the time and you have to read the Bible all the time. Well, you do pray all the time inwardly, but you can't just be uh, down on your knees all the time. Uh, you're seeking messages from God and inspiration from God, and you have periods of prayer and special prayer. And that's what Jesus meant when he said pray without ceasing. And what the psalmist means here by meditating upon God's law day and night is by weighing and testing whatever comes our way upon the scales of God's word to see if it meets with God's approval and making our choices accordingly, either accepting or rejecting as to whether or not it fits in with the authority and the plain sense of Scripture. Uh, I was reading Mr. Moody last week, and he was telling about a, uh, being at uh, Northfield, Massachusetts, where he had a great conference center. And uh, a group of young people had spent a whole night praying. And the next morning, they came running up to Mr. Moody as he came out from breakfast and strode across uh, uh, the grounds there at Northfield. And one of them said, Mr. Moody, we stayed up all night long and prayed the whole night. Uh, can't you see our faces shining? <laughs> and then Mr. Moody, the word wist for you young people who are in, unfamiliar with King James uh, has to do with no uh, uh, knowledge. And uh, so uh, Mr. Moody talked about Moses who went up into the mountain to be with God. And when he came down, the King James Version of Scripture says that he wists not that his face shone. He didn't know that his face was shining. And so Mr. Moody quoted this verse to the people who said they'd been up all night in, in prayer and were very proud of it. He said, when Moses came from, down from the mountain, he wist not that his face shone. And so if we come down from the mountain with uh, God, uh, we are not aware that our faces are shining, but others will be aware of it. We don't have to point it out to them. And so this is where I take it to mean meditating upon the law of God both day and night. It gives us another analogy of the righteous. It tells us that he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Of course, in this area of the world where this psalmist lived, uh, trees were very, very precious. They were precious for shade, and they were precious uh, for products that they yielded, fruit. I'm sure that he is speaking here of date uh, palms, of big palm trees where there were clusters of dates. And a tree planted by the rivers of water could luxuriate in growth and be strong when winds hit it. If you drive through Montreat, you'll see a good many trees that have been blown down. Those of us who are looking for firewood have our eyes on some of them. You see trees that are broken over. Some of the trees were weak, and they were rotten. And when the test came of the high winds, it broke them and caused them to break apart. Well, the blessed man... The man who is going to be happy with God is a man who is a person of character and stability. 
He is noted uh, for these attributes. He is like a tree. Uh, the tree is different from the chaff. The chaff is just the husks that the kernels of wheat uh, were clothed in. And uh, the trash that is blown away by the wind. But the people who count in life are the people who have stability. And the people who uh, n do not just have a reputation, but a character. Uh, and some stability in that character upon which people can depend. One of the great prime ministers of England was a man by the name of Gladstone. And uh, one of his contemporaries was an enormously powerful uh, and eloquent preacher by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And uh, once when Mr. Spurgeon spoke uh, at a meeting that was honoring Prime Minister Gladstone, Spurgeon said these memorable words. He said, we do not believe in any man's infallibility. But it is restful to believe in one man's integrity. Now, we may not be infallible, and none of us are infallible, but we can be people of integrity. And this counts. And this is one of those things by which young people may be known. And that's why those negative things are given there, telling us to keep away from the counsel, the wisdom of the ungodly, to avoid standing in the way of sinners, to avoid finally sitting in the seat of the scornful. Get away from that attitude. This takes a certain holy stubbornness. There is a negative side to goodness. And the, uh, John Newton, who is one of the members of our faculty, uh, was persistent in working toward his Ph.D. from Emory University in Atlanta. And John and I have been friends for many, many years. And uh, John became a Christian when he was a student at Georgia Tech. He had gone there on an ROTC scholarship and uh, did the degree in electrical engineering at Tech. And he became an, a Christian under the influence of, of Dr. Manford George Gutsky of Columbia Seminary, who held some Bible classes for students there and who taught John that he could be intelligent and accept the authority and truth of Holy Scripture and John became an earnest Christian. And immediately upon graduation from Georgia Tech, it was necessary for him to fulfill his obligations to the government. Because he was on an ROTC scholarship, he had to go into the military, and he went into the Navy. He became an electronics officer. This was his first time to be far away from uh, home and to test his newfound Christian faith in an atmosphere that was often godless, in an atmosphere that often scoffed at the virtues of, that Jesus Christ would extol. And John developed a phrase that he spoke of. He said, I developed an, an attitude of holy stubbornness. I learned that if I said no enough to things that I really believed were wrong, then finally people would get the message and they wouldn't come and tempt me to do certain things. And then they would leave him alone. And that's good advice. Sometimes you, uh, the hardest word in all the world to say is no. But if we learn to say no to that which is wrong, uh, then we are better prepared for this positive side, this delight in the law of the Lord, and this development as a tree. Now, when it says here that the blessed man, the happy man, 
is going to prosper, and I, as I said he would a while ago. This does not mean that he will not be acquainted with adversity in life. In fact, one of the, one of the great blessings that can come to us is to run into some adversity early in life. One of the great industrialists in America made this statement not long ago at, at an important meeting. He said that one of the finest things that had ever happened to him was to hit adversity when he was young because he learned from his experience to be tough. And he learned also uh, that he could work. And he had learned some important lessons from God. A few months ago, I went to New York to talk to a man who is the settler of a, of a big foundation. Uh, and when I arrived at the airport, his chauffeur met me in what looked to me like a brand new Rolls Royce. They all look a little old, but uh, I don't ride in Rolls Royces very much, and I was very taken with this ride from the airport to this man's house. I was looking at everything in the car while we were driving through New York and going out to his estate and thinking about how much money that thing cost and, and wondering whether it was really that good. Well, uh, the Rolls-Royce company, of course, got in a lot of trouble on their automobile, on their airplane engines, but they don't have any trouble with their cars. They still are selling these, and they have more orders than they can fill. And the way that that car was developed came about with this very point of hitting adversity. Early in the life of the automobile, uh, a person who had a car uh, to drive for as far as 10 miles without breaking down was considered very lucky. And that's not a good Presbyterian word. But, <laughs> but anyway, he was considered very uh, predestined to happiness or something if he, got, <laughs> if, he, if he got 10 miles with it. In fact, one of the most famous songs in, in the early days of the automobile where people wore goggles and a cap and they had a linen duster and they had a famous song called Get Out and Get Under. I see some <laughs> mean you had to get out and get under the automobile and, and fix it because something was always going wrong with a car. Well, over in England, there was a man by the name of Henry Royce, and he made his first car in 1904. Uh, he had been a manufacturer of cranes, uh, steel cranes, and, and uh, uh, automobiles really were not his line, but he was annoyed at the fact that, that the cars seemed to break down so easily. And uh, he wanted to build a car that would really stand up. And he found a sort of daredevil sports driver who knew a lot of ins and outs about cars whose name was Charles Rolls. And so Henry Royce and Charles Rose uh, put their uh, abilities together and they began to work on a car, a car that they thought would last a whole lifetime. And so in order to make a car that would be that way, they had to figure out some way to test it. Cars were tested in that day and time by simply taking them out on a, on a country roads, and all roads were country then, and driving for about 10 miles, and if it didn't break down, then you sold it to the customer. Uh, well, these fellows decided that they were going to build a car that would last a lifetime, and the first thing that they would have to do would be to invent a bumping machine, a machine that would expose their new automobile to adversity. And so they, they started, and I want to read you the description of that bumping machine. It consisted of large cogwheels 
submerged in the, in the floor of concrete, six feet apart. The rear wheels of the automobile were chained to the floor with a big cog under each wheel. When the cog wheel turned and the automobile engine was put in motion, the effect was the equivalent of driving over railroad ties at 60 miles an hour, hitting every single cross tie. Well, you can imagine what happened when they put one of these cars on it. They took off at 60 miles an hour, but the first thing they knew, there was a great explosion and the radiator blew up. And then the axle broke down, the transmission came all apart, and their car came completely to pieces. And so then they started to figure out metal alloys that would be tough enough to stand this rigorous bumping. They figured out a radiator cooling system that would be able to take it. And finally, they were able to develop one of these luxurious and expensive cars that uh, few of us ever get to ride in or see. And uh, it comes about because of bumping and adversity, and it caused the development of that great car. And so adversity that comes to us may not be bad. It may be God's way of testing us and making us into what we ought to be for him. Uh, this is like a tree planted by rivers of water. It says his leaf also shall not wither. I grew up on a farm in East Texas, and uh, there was a sort of a little... I called it a lake then, but last summer I went back out there and looked at it, and it was just a little tiny pond. <laughs> Actually, it looked so small. Uh, but when I was a little boy, that thing looked like the ocean to me. And over on a, on a clay hill on, on one side of it, there was a great, huge evergreen tree. And I can remember as a little boy going out and looking at that big evergreen tree. And I thought a lot about that tree as life has gone on. In fact, I think of one usually when I see an evergreen. And the reason that I did is that in the spring of the year when all the flowers are blooming, when the trees are all budding, you didn't pay much attention to the evergreen. And then when summer came and all the trees had big leaves on them, big green leaves, and there was a lot of greenery everywhere, you didn't pay much attention to it. And then in the fall of the year, when all of the different trees were a whole forest of, of colors of red and orange and, and uh, yellow, you still didn't pay much attention to it. But in the very dead of winter, when the leaves had been sheared away by the cold driving rains of winter, that evergreen tree looked mighty pretty to me. It was green, stayed green all the year round. Well, the righteous man, according to this psalm, is like that. His leaf shall not wither. He's planted by the rivers of water. That's part of that meditation day and night about which God's word is all based. He's taking his spiritual resources from that. And whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. This means that he's not going to be gotten down. He may not always be successful. As far as the world terms success, and I'm convinced every year that the world knows very little of what real success is. I was out in Kansas not long ago, and uh, this is great farming country, and someone out there, one Lutheran pastor, told a, a story of some boy 
at uh, one of the big fat stock shows in Kansas City who had a blue ribbon hog that had won the prize, the best hog in the whole state of Kansas. But he said that this boy was so uncouth, his language was so obscene and his expression so filthy and his manners so rude that one man who came by and looked at this prize hog that the boy was showing for his father said, well, his daddy may be able to raise a prize hog, but he's raised a prize bum as far as his son is concerned. And I think there's a lot, of lesson, uh, a lot to the lesson we can learn from that. Who wants a prize hog and a prize bum for a son? It takes, it takes some work at everything that we do. And here, these qualities of righteousness are not measurable in the world's ways of success, but the scriptures are teaching us that there is a success that is to be found in God, not as this world measures it, but in the blessings that come uh, from a righteous life. Whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. That's how I take that word to mean. One of the most beautiful stories that I ever saw, illustrating the eventual triumph of righteousness, came from the life of Sir Thomas More. I'm sure that many of you probably have seen the film, A Man for All Seasons, and he was. He was a great man. He was a great Christian. He had been... Uh, Lord Chancellor of, the Lord Chancellor of England had condemned him to death. He had been dealt with in a very high-handed and capricious manner. On very specious charges he had been condemned. And on the day that his judges pronounced the sentence of his death and he was to be executed, this man, who was a blessed man, a happy man, because he was righteous and anchored in God, made these remarks to the people who condemned him to death. Listen. More have I not to say, my lords, but, what Saint, but that St. Paul held the clothes of those who stoned Stephen to death. And yet both he and Stephen are now saints together in heaven, and they shall continue to be friends forever. And so I verily trust and shall most heartily pray that your lordships have now here on earth been judges to my condemnation, but that one day we may nevertheless in heaven cheerfully meet and be friends forever. Those are unusually remarkable words, words of a blessed man. Aristotle said that few people could really be happy, said a slave couldn't be happy because he was just a, poo, a, a tool. He said that a pauper couldn't be happy, a poor man, because he didn't have enough of the things in life to know what uh, real goodies tasted like. He said that a young man who died young couldn't be happy because he didn't live long enough to reflect on things. So he said there were really very few people that could be happy. 
And yet you read a while ago those words of Jesus. Blessed, happy are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. These are all keynotes to happiness. And as we look out to the new year. We will not want to follow the way of the ungodly. For he will be driven away as dust and as chaff. But the righteous man will stand because he's taken his bearings from God and because his happy new year is based upon a life that is yielded to the lordship of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The bleakest day of World War II, the King of England went on the air in midwinter and addressed his people as they stood on the threshold of a new year. Everything in all of Europe looked grim, and Hitler's insane policies of death and destruction and hate filled the air. Poor little England was wobbling and about to go under. And the king read over the radio these words of Louise Haskins. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, Give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, Go out into the darkness and put thine hand into the hand of God. That shall be to thee better than light and safer than a known way. Happy New Year. You can have one with your hand in God and by walking in the light of Jesus Christ. Let us stand in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that thou wilt teach us that this world is not our home, but that we are indeed pilgrims and strangers here walking a wilderness journey, and that we have been told plainly by our Master to lay up our treasures in heaven, where moth and rust cannot corrupt and where thieves will never break through nor steal. Help us to be the salt of the earth. Help us to be the light of the world as the Holy Spirit works in us. Help us so to live that men may see the good which you have enabled us to do and glorify thee who art our Father in heaven. As we come toward this new year, help us to refrain from counsels that are not based upon thy truth. Keep us from standing in the constant company of that which will pull us down. And keep us, O God, from that seat of scorning and ridicule of that which is righteous. Bless us, O God, to delight in thee 
and to take our bearings for life from that which will bring honor to thy name. 